Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 428, Tightening the Grip. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Laura, Anne, and David for signing up already. Five years of fighting. The conquest of England wasn't something that was resolved on a single day in October of 1066. William had been fighting this thing for five years. And they were long years. Ever since Hastings, the Normans had faced rebellion after rebellion. Sometimes multiple rebellions in multiple towns at the same time. Exeter had rebelled twice. Canterbury had rebelled, Hereford and Shrewsbury had rebelled, most of Mercia had rebelled, Eustace of Boulogne had rebelled in Dover, the sons of Harold Godwinson had rebelled, the widow of Harold Godwinson had rebelled, Durham had rebelled, York had rebelled, Ely had rebelled. And fighting alongside the English rebels, we see clergy members, the Scots, Irish pirates, the Welsh, the Danes, and in the case of Eustace, even a few French soldiers. So it's safe to say that the Normans were not greeted as liberators, nor were they accepted as some sort of inevitable tide of history. They weren't welcome on the island. England had fought back, and they fought hard. But against all odds, the Norman occupation had managed to hang on to these ill-gotten goods. And this was partially thanks to those English nobles who initially joined the rebellions, but kept undermining the cause and attempted to cut a deal for their own benefit whenever things got difficult. But I think the other secret to Norman's success was William's bottomless capacity for violence. And William wasn't just violent. He broke the rules for violence. He inflicted violence at a shocking scale and also targeted people who would otherwise be spared under the customs of society. Everyone was subject to his violence and his avarice. And whether he was on the continent or in England, that seemed to catch many of the people in leadership positions completely by surprise, which in turn gave him an advantage. But at the same time, that strategy, such that it is, led to a near-constant state of rebellion, which, had he governed in a more reasonable manner, he likely wouldn't have faced. For example, when Canute took over, he didn't deal with this degree of opposition. So William's conquest was strange and horrific, and it made him more enemies than allies. It also left him owning a bunch of burned fields without living farmers to help till them back to profit. But, nevertheless he finally found himself unopposed. He was now the King of England. Which, you know, sucked for everyone. It obviously sucked for the rebels. Even the rebels who survived were condemned to imprisonment, exile, impoverishment, or mutilation. And even the Englishmen who hadn't been in open rebellion were in for a rough time here. And everyone was about to see exactly how far-reaching a crackdown can get after a failed rebellion. But here's the part that will probably surprise you. Being the king of England sucked for William as well. Because here's the thing. 
William didn't actually want to be king of England. In fact, the evidence tells us that William wanted something else this entire time. And the truth of it is staring us in the face when we look at his military campaigns throughout France and England. It's also there when you look at the figures he installed into power within England and look at where they came from. Some were Flemish, some were Breton, some were Norman, some were from elsewhere in France. A few were English, of course, but those weren't going to last too long. But for the most part, they were from everywhere. And we can also look who populated William's court. You have figures like Poitiers and Lanfranc. And that's an odd choice, given that this new king of England showed no personal interest in things like the latest interpretation of the Council of Nicaea. And I think William's true heart's desire, the actual master plan, comes into sharp focus when you look at the design of his crown. Because it doesn't look English. And it doesn't look French either. All the evidence of the last five years in the record tells pretty much the same story. William had imperial ambitions. That's why he was bringing courtiers and rulers from all over the continent. It's why he insisted on having major thinkers in his court, just like famous emperors did. He was trying to establish and weave the first threads of a new continental empire. It's probably also why he worked so hard to have close contact with the Pope, just as many emperors had done before him. And I'm pretty sure that's why his crown was so reminiscent of the Byzantine style. I don't think William wanted to be king, and he certainly didn't want to be duke. It seems quite clear that he wanted to be emperor. And to be completely fair here, devastating a random civilization because you're trying to challenge the power of a completely different civilization is like the most empire thing ever. And when you take that evidence into account and put it together with the rest, you can see the plan as William probably saw it. William likely was intending to use his position in England as the first step in a series of power grabs that would eventually lead him to build some sort of imperial domination over a significant portion of Western Europe. An empire that would be centered on Normandy. It's the only thing that makes sense of his previous behavior and his later behaviors. He was an expansionist ruler, and he didn't seem to be content with a single title. So I think, when you look at William's behavior and actions, becoming the King of England was supposed to be just a stepping stone, an easy cash grab that would fund the fight against the real barriers to his advancement, those rivals on the continent. But, rather than propelling him forward in that fight, the conquest of England had actually done the opposite. This crown had taken all of his resources and focus just to hold on to it. And the island had caused him no end of problems. Even worse, the distraction of fighting to keep it had weakened Normandy's position on the continent. If you remember, when William embarked on his plan to take the throne of England, he had the explicit support of the papacy. He also controlled Maine. He was allied with Flanders. He had, well... Honestly, his relationship with Brittany was complicated at best, but he still held a fair amount of influence there. And perhaps most importantly for his ambitions, he was close to the king of France, or at least as close as anyone could be to a monarch within a chivalric culture. 
but the last five years had changed everything. William's behavior during the conquest had strained his papal support. And while the church hadn't turned on him, it's never a good thing to have the Supreme Pontiff get out his slide ruler and determine how many Hail Marys you need to do to shake off all that accumulated sin for the widespread rape and murder committed by your army. And as for Maine, well, William had been so busy with the English rebels that he was forced to assign his eldest son, Robert Curthose, to handle the rebellion on the continent. And in his father's absence, little short stockings had completely bungled it and lost Maine. So that's great. Meanwhile, William's behavior in England, and specifically the harrying of the North, had damaged his already strained relationship with many of his Breton supporters. With large numbers of knights, and even his hand-picked Earl of Cornwall, Brian, deciding to call it a day and head home and no amount of land or riches could change their minds. And most recently, William's attempt to expand his control over Flanders by allowing his childhood friend and seneschal, Fitzosborne, to fight in the Flemish War on the side of Arnulf had failed spectacularly. And now Fitzosborne was dead, and Arnulf was dead, and the new Count Robert of Flanders was refusing to respond to any of William's texts. And while we can't know whether or not a more robust degree of support from William might have tipped the balance in Arnulf's favor, the fact that he didn't offer much support other than his seneschal, an earl, and a few soldiers tells us that this was probably about the best he could handle at the time. Because if you're in a situation where your second-in-command is getting involved in a civil war, you damn well are going to want to win that. And instead... He basically just sent over a couple of guys and an arthritic dog. And the only explanation for that is because he was up to his eyeballs with English rebels. And it really cannot be overstated how disastrous that was. Flanders was the source of much of William's original political legitimacy, thanks to his marriage to Matilda. It was also a significant source of his military strength. This entire time, William was hiring Flemish soldiers from Count Baldwin V, and he no doubt intended to continue that arrangement with Baldwin's son, Arnulf. But now Arnulf was dead, and Count Robert was on the throne, and Robert hated William, so the Flemish well of soldiers had dried up. And while William was trying to make lemonade out of this situation by supporting Arnulf's younger brother as a claimant to Flanders, that wasn't going anywhere. And considering that even King Philip of France had aligned himself with Count Robert, rather than Arnulf's younger brother, I think everyone knew it wasn't going anywhere. Oh, and speaking of the King of France, his new relationship with Count Robert meant that now the king was frenemies with William at best. And when it came to William's ambitions, he was downright hostile. Because I can't stress this enough, chivalric culture is just mean girls with swords. And William had spent so much time bullying the band kids table that the cool kids had a chance to talk about him and realized they didn't like him. So now, William's best shot was to become the new queen bee of the band kids. And honestly, that's a little funny, so long as you're not thinking about how hard it was on the poor band kids. 
So all at once, William's political ambitions had collapsed. And rather than creating a power base from within Normandy, which could then eventually allow him to contend with a fellow king, looking at you, Philip, instead, he was more isolated than ever. But he did still have England and also some more time to focus on himself. And by himself, I mean crush any remaining semblance of rebellion and remold England into a form that would suit him a bit better. And to this end, William began to dramatically reshape power and wealth within England. He changed who holds it, who wields it, and how far those limits could be pushed in every possible direction. The decisions that William and his continental supporters make in the next years will shape the power structures of England in ways that impact UK citizens today, in everything, down to who they pay rent to, and what lands are considered public, and what taxes fund which institutions. It starts happening here, with a frustrated William stuck with a crown to a kingdom that he had no love or loyalty to. And the first step for restructuring was, as it often is, centered around real estate. You see, just after the Battle of Hastings and throughout the rebellion period, William had been surrounded by supporters from various counties and duchies. And then as he acquired titles and lands, he granted them to those supporters within his new kingdom. It was exactly the sort of strategy one would use if you were building support for your own future rebellion against Oh, I don't know, the King of France. But a lot had changed since then. And now, with things on the continent turning against him, we see William turning away from the continent. And rather than a wide swath of supporters being granted lands and titles, now those who are being granted land and power are increasingly from William's homeland. And the Norman conquest was becoming, well, very Norman. And this is important for more than just political reasons. This dominance of Norman people has a huge impact on the new aristocratic culture that's being imposed on England. Because make no mistake about it, William was remaking the nobility of England. Completely. In fact, by this point in the story, the end of 1071, there was only one English-born earl remaining in power in England. Earl Waltheof. That's it. He's the only one. So the highest levels of society were being replaced by continental figures. And due to William's actions and his loss of popularity on the continent, the pool of applicants for those positions were becoming predominantly Norman. And considering the culture they had over there, I mean, even William had spent most of his life dodging assassinations and rebellions from his own people, and actually often his own family, well, I'm sure that's going to go great for everyone. And honestly, I doubt he was getting the cream of the crop in his applicants. Because as we've already read about, a bunch of the knights were leaving England due to William's behavior. And also, reportedly, the threatened behavior of their wives. And so that raises some questions about the character and ability of the figures who remained behind. I mean, these were likely not your best administrators, your fairest judges, or your most patient stewards. They were, however, likely to be highly motivated by William's promises of wealth, land, and violence. And I should point out that we're not just talking about earls here. This shift was happening at every level of society. For example, 
You might remember that when William first took over, he actually kept many of the English sheriffs. And that meant that these dudes were then tasked with enforcing William's unpopular and increasingly punitive edicts upon their own neighbors, which I'm sure made them very popular. Now, from the Norman perspective, there was a lot of sense to this, because by having an English shire reeve enforce the laws, William would be able to make an argument that he really did intend to rule as an English king. And I suspect that it was this kind of psychological warfare that was part of what made it so hard for the English to establish a broad rebellion against William. I mean, if the rebels are right, and William's nothing but a Norman tyrant who's hostile to the English, then why did he have English officers in his court? By cutting Reeve Athelbred a nice fat check, William was able to make the rebels look like alarmists. And of course, Athelbred was only too happy to cash that check. But, you know how it goes... Tokens get spent, and as soon as William didn't need the English Reeves to give him cover, they got pink slips, and William filled those positions with good, wholesome, continental knights. And considering recent political events, that increasingly meant Norman knights. This seismic shift in continental politics was even having an impact on settlement and colonization at the village level. For example, historian David Bates notes that while we do continue to see Flemings settling in England over the course of the 11th century, following the disastrous interference in the Flemish Civil War, we also see those trends reversing and Flemish people begin abandoning England and returning to their homeland, which in turn would create vacancies for any Norman supporters who were more tolerant of William's style of governance and rule. Now, obviously, there were still non-Norman continental figures in England, and some of them were quite powerful, Alan Rufus being particularly powerful. But what I'm commenting on is that five years into the conquest, we're seeing a sharp turn towards Normandy and away from the rest of the continent. And this shift to Norman dominance was so significant that we even see it in the documents. All of a sudden, at almost exactly this point in time, the language of the writs and charters changes. For generations, those documents had been written in Old English, which meant that any Englishman with the ability to read could understand the writs and charters that dictated the course of their lives. And even if an individual couldn't read, they would be able to understand the language of the writs so long as someone was there to read them out loud. This system also meant that when the king or his officers issued a writ to the shire courts, the officers overseeing those courts could clearly understand both what the writ had to say and also communicate it to the public and understand any questions or concerns the members of the public might raise. And this ensured a pretty solid bit of transparency in a system that was otherwise far from democratic. But here's the thing with that. These new aristocrats didn't speak Old English. They spoke French and maybe a little Latin. And like their king, they had no interest in learning the language of the peasants. Hell, most of them were knights, so they barely had an interest in learning anything, least of all writing. Leave that to the nerds. And the French nerds were all trained in Latin. So all at once, the language of the writs and charters changed to Latin. A language the vast majority of the English could not speak, 
let alone read. And suddenly, proficiency in Latin was a required skill for officers installed in shire courts and other positions throughout the kingdom. And fluency in Old English? Well, that wasn't. And considering William's focus on filling English positions with continental figures and recent continental events, that meant that the shire courts, the hundred courts, the sheriffs, and all those other functionaries and officials were likely to be figures from Normandy. And just imagine how this would affect the average person of the time. The people who would be you and me if we'd been born English in the 11th century. Less than a decade ago, all free men had at least some sort of access to justice. You could bring your grievances to the hundred court, or the shire court, or if you were highly ranked enough, you could even go to the king's court. And on a day-to-day -day level, if you found yourself with some sort of issue, you could meet with a local reeve or officer. And with any of these things, you could speak with them in your own tongue and plead your case, or ask for help, or ask for leniency. But now, at every level of the administration, we see those positions getting staffed by people who spoke French. And if they were bilingual, it probably wasn't Old English that they were proficient at. It was Latin. If you were lucky, maybe some of your local officers could speak your language. But it's clear from how William was filling these positions and the choices being made and how documents were drafted that being able to communicate and integrate with the local population was not a concern for this new regime, let alone a priority. The English would have to adapt to Norman ways, not the other way around. And here's where it gets very personal, because the Normans weren't just mandating changes to public and political life. They also made changes to English home lives as well. And this was so well known that even a lost portion of Poitiers, which reaches us through Orderic, admits it, though he does put a typical Poitiers spin on it. Quote, the English and Normans were living peacefully together in boroughs, towns, and cities, and were intermarrying with each other. You could see many villages or town markets filled with displays of French wares and merchandise, and observe the English, who had previously seemed contemptible to the French in their native dress, completely transformed by foreign fashions." End quote. Kiss me. And that sounds nice, doesn't it? Everyone's practically singing kumbaya and falling in love and even getting some fancy new threads. But as always, we have to take Poitiers with a grain of salt. The guy was hired to praise William and the Normans, and he did a damn good job of it. I mean, may we all have biographers who are so dedicated to polishing even the worst of our turds. But thankfully, we have Orderic, and Orderic does us his usual solid. So after sharing what Poitiers had to say, Orderic goes on to castigate the Normans for pages. And what he has to say doesn't sound like the Normans were living peacefully with the English. He tells us how they were becoming rich by pillaging the English and how, quote, they arrogantly abused their authority and mercilessly slaughtered the native people like the scourge of God, end quote. He goes on to speak about how the Normans were committing widespread rape. And as for those vaunted intermarriages that Poitiers praised, well, there's almost no evidence for that in the record. Like, not just Orderic, anywhere. 
Intermarriage in the record is crazy rare. And one of the few instances we can find in the documents where it happened was Earl Waltheoff's arranged marriage with William's niece, Judith. Which means a political marriage intended to bind the last remaining English earl to the House of Normandy and thus ensure that he would continue to serve William's interests, at least theoretically, was one of our only examples of what Poitiers was framing as a kingdom-wide love fest. But the truth of what was happening in England was so bad that stories began to spread throughout Europe. You see, the brutality of Norman rule over England was a medieval scandal. And let that sink in. And the most scandalous part was what the Normans were doing to English women. References to sexual violence against women in England are distressingly common. But there's also another way that these Normans were abusing English women. We have contemporary accounts from monks like Frutolf of Mikkelsburg, who was writing all the way over in Bamberg, Germany. And even they, far away in Germany, were hearing about and lamenting the forced marriages that were being imposed on English women. Yeah, forced marriages. Not exactly the rom-com that Poitiers was pitching. And the blame for this policy was placed specifically at William's feet. And if you're wondering why he'd be interested in forced marriages, well, like nearly everything with these guys, it had to do with real estate. You see, ever since they first landed on English shores, the Normans had been killing ridiculous numbers of Englishmen. And a good number of those Englishmen held lands, which meant that, given the way English law was structured, their widows now held lands. But if they got married, well, their new husbands would have those lands. So you can see why William would have wanted to arrange as many of those marriages as possible. And we have a lot of people talking about this. Even Archbishop Lanfranc was writing about it. Now, Lanfranc was the priest who orchestrated much of this invasion by getting the Pope to support William. And later, when William set about removing all the English from positions of power and had the Pope help him get rid of the Archbishop of Canterbury, it was Lanfranc who was quickly slotted in as the new Archbishop of Canterbury. Well, in addition to helping launch a genocidal war in order to get a promotion, Lanfranc was also an avid letter writer. And in one of his letters, he talked about, you guessed it, forced intermarriage. You see, the priests that answered to him were being faced with a vexing new problem. The nunneries were getting absolutely stuffed with English women who were trying to escape forced marriages to the invading Norman knights. And so the priests and abbots wanted to know what to do about this, which meant that Lanfranc needed to come up with a new policy. And no, he wasn't trying to figure out how to make this stop. He was still Lanfranc, the same guy who, when he wrote to the Pope about his appointment as Archbishop of Canterbury, spoke about his, quote, ignorance of the language and of these barbarous people, end quote. You know, the people who were supposed to be his flock. Real soft touch that land frank so when he was asked what to do about all these nuns who actually weren't all that interested in religious life and were just there because they were hiding from a horse bro well he landed on a solution quote 
If they can prove this was so by the unambiguous witness of nuns better than they, let them be granted unrestricted leave to depart. End quote. Did he catch that? The archbishop is saying that if you're seeking sanctuary from rape and forced marriage, well, if highly ranked, meaning almost certainly Norman, nuns will vouch for you, then you can leave the convent and um, be left to the tender mercies of that Norman that you were avoiding. Yeah, not much of a solution there, Frank. I think I can see why Orderic spilled so much ink condemning the clergy for using the conquest to advance their own personal goals. But the point here isn't that Lanfranc sucks. I think that goes without saying. The point, instead, is that what was happening in England was an aggressive and violent colonization. And it was taking place at every level of society, in places both public and private. And we can even see it in Poitiers' praise of the English abandoning their, quote, contemptible, end quote, culture, and instead choosing to dress in French fashion. Because I can't help but recall the Roman occupation and how they relentlessly worked to erase British culture and enforce Romanization. I think something very similar was happening here, though obviously with a Norman twist. And think about it. If you were an 11th century Englishman, and you were governed by Norman horse bros who saw your culture as contemptible, and who, according to contemporary scribes, did not hesitate to inflict violence upon you and your neighbors, if you could afford it, would you start to change how you dressed so you'd look less like a target and more like the people that these horse bros liked? I think I would. And even if some crazy how your local Norman overlords weren't violent and you were just trying to get a good price at market or were hoping to find justice at the hundred court, would you want to dress in your local clothing, the clothing that the people in power hated? Or would you dress in a way that was pleasing to them? You'd do the latter, wouldn't you? I mean, think about it in terms of today. Usually when people go to court, they're not wearing sweatpants. They're wearing dress clothes because that's what the people in power expect you to wear. So yeah, of course Poitiers was seeing a change in fashion. And this shift went far beyond Project Runway. For example, to exist in society, the English were going to need to start learning new words. And the words that they'd need to learn would be dictated by their role in society. So, for example, if you were working on a farm, you'd still use your local language for the animal that you were raising. Cow. I mean, it's not like your lord was out there in the fields with you, so you could just use the words that you knew. But as soon as your overlord came along to tell you that he wanted that cow for his feast, well, you would need to understand his word for it. Buff. And that linguistic split still exists. That's why we call it beef. And it's the same for other animals, too. Pig, pork. Chicken, poultry. Deer venison. If you're raising an animal or hunting it, in general, use English. If you're eating it, use French. So when we're talking about these changes, we're not just talking about earls and kings. We're talking about priests, landlords, cops, merchants, marriages, records, language, even clothing. Everything was undergoing an enormous and forced change. And a lot of it was personal. 
which in turn went on to change the entire course of English history because the personal is political. The things that happen at home or even in the small moments of people's day-to-day lives are what makes culture. And that's how big power can impact every small life. Hastings and the subsequent battles and massacres were the conquest. But this right here, this is the colonization. And the crazy thing is that even though the English were the ones suffering under this regime, this wasn't even about them. This was about Normandy and France. England was just collateral damage. But that didn't mean William was going to let England go. And to the north, in Scotland, King Malcolm had just married Margaret, the sister of Edgar Atheling. And that could make him a potential claimant to the throne. So William wasn't about to ignore that. And while the English might not like him, they damn well were going to fight for him. And in an incredible show of power, William began to assemble a combined land and sea force that even included former rebels like Edric the Wild. Because every rebellion had failed. So what could they do? Say no? He was king now. Against all odds, William's grip on England hadn't been loosened. If anything, it was tightening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit, and you can find links to that site and all our other communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.